0: Hey, church fam. You're listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. We're praying God would speak to you through it and you would see Christ centered life change. Here's your pastor, Ben Kimfer. That's okay. I'm going to get us caught up uh, because to understand. Um, codependency uh, being a relational kind of pattern that we, people have discovered, generally speaking, between interpersonal relationships. Um, what's interesting is we call our relationship with Jesus a relationship with Jesus. And so if we have a tendency as people to have a particular unhealthy relational pattern, then perhaps that's also true when it comes to God. And if codependency is a brand new concept for you, um, that's wonderful. I'm glad that you're here. And let me give you a brief understanding of what it is and where it came from. So people started to look and say, okay, why is it, if you look at the kind of the most typified version of this, why is it that someone who is in some type of a cycle of addiction can oftentimes use the people closest to them and they just take take and take and take and take and take. And the people who are oftentimes closest to them just continually give and give and give and give. And psychologists and sociologists and people would study this and say, why is that? In fact, not even just from them, but just kind of between friends, right? Two friends that you can have a relationship, you can be friends with one another, and it seems like one friend just takes up all the space in the relationship. All of the talk time, all of the emotional energy, all of the subject content just kind of revolves around them. And another person, it's just like, man, they're just glad to help and to be a part of that. And they would say, why is that? Why is that? Why is that 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 can exist and people are fine with it? Well, they began to call this as a sense of codependency and we're not gonna get into all the underneath behind that but just to kind of simply look at at the dynamics of it. And there's two people or two parties in any type of a codependent relationship. The first one is that of the giver the Giver, and here's basically what the giver says is I'm more concerned about what you need than I am about me. I'm more concerned with what you need than I am about me. And I said this last week if you hear that and you're thinking, Why would anybody ever think that? that's because you're the taker, okay? Very next one taker is I'm more concerned about what I get than what I, than the one that's giving. I'm more concerned about what I get than the, than the one that's giving. Now, to be honest and to be fair. We don't necessarily think I devalue you, I don't care about you. But the reality of the function between our relationships says that. It says, as soon as you stop giving, as soon as I stop needing, as soon as, you know, we need to talk about me, we need to talk about my problems, my issues, my trauma. Some I mean, of you guys, there's this thing called trauma dump, which is not a lot of times trauma dump. A lot of times it's just like stress dump. That's a whole different thing for a whole different situation because trauma is a very, 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 very deep, impactful thing. Anyways. That to say sometimes it's just like this kind of vacuum that goes and that goes and that goes and you don't think about that. You just think they're being a good friend. But if you're trying to objectively look at the relationship, you'd say, man, this is very toxic. And it's not just for this can happen with parents and kids, right, where it seems like the kid just gets so much of what they want and nothing of what they need. My um, kids are seven and five, and we are, I'm being bombarded daily with, like, Dad, when am I going to get a cell phone? Dad, when am I going to get a cell phone? I'm like, you're going to get a cell phone when Jesus comes back. That's what I think, you're getting a cell phone, right? Like, you don't need one. Like, like what do you need? They're like, my friend has a cell phone. I'm like, well, your friend's parents are bad. Just, just going to say that. Just kidding, But right, we, we've seen this, right, with a parent, and they just continually give and give and give to the kids, and the kid throws a tantrum, and they just give and give and give, and it's like, I'm warning you, I'm warning you. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't warn Maybe you should just snatch them up, right? But but there's a sense of the parents, we get this unhealthy, you know, take and take and take. Okay, and, and the opposite can be true. You parentify children to the needs of the parents because the parent's life is ultimately unsustainable, and so they just, you know, treat the kids like they're a parent, and the reverse could be true as well. But there's a giver and there's a taker. And what we found was this. For us, the way that we know and have experienced this is that when God calls us to do something, when his word calls us to do something, we listen to God and obey God, generally speaking, when the flow of benefit of obedience is in our direction, right? So God calls me to do something. I say, okay, God. God calls me to go somewhere. I say, okay, God, right? Like all of us, being it's like if God called me to go on a mission trip. Like some of us, we want to go in like to like the like third world country. And some of us is like, man, could God call me to go to a mission trip, maybe in uh, London? You know, that'd be nice. I would love to go on a mission trip to Egypt. I just want to see the pyramids at some point. Right. We love to follow God when the flow of obedience is a benefit to us. In other words, this is an example we used last week. And we're going to jump into a lot of the actual specific application in the weeks to come. But this is what we love to invite God in when all of a sudden there's existential financial need. God, would you please help, God, would you please, God, I need mean something, I don't know how this bill's gonna get paid, I don't know how, I mean, I've got, a, I've got kids, I've got a mortgage, I've got responsibilities, I've got a job, I've got a house, I've got rent, I've got utility, I mean, I've, got, I've got so much stuff, and God, I don't know where it's gonna come from when we invite God in. And then it happens, and you get the job, and you get the interview, and it all works out. And then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, God, I wanted to invite you into the provision of my financial situation. And if you're like super spiritual, you start naming all like the Jehovah's, right? The Jehovah Jireh, and you're like get Lion King with like Jehovah Rafiki, right? Like you're just like, you're throwing out everything you can, God my provider, God my sustainer, God, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden he provides, we think, well, well, hold on, like, how much do I have to give? Yeah, God, let's be honest, I don't even really trust churches. You talking about organized religion? Now, God, I trust you, but I don't know what I'm going to do with this. We love the flow of obedience, the benefit of obedience when it flows towards us, but when we feel like it goes in the other direction, it makes it really difficult. Now, here's why that's important. The two examples that I gave of relationships, one of, of, of friends or of marriage, you know, that, that, that's a relationship among equals. There's two types of codependence. There's one that is amongst equals. We are not equals with God. The one that we have with God is called a hierarchical relationship. The, the clear demarcation of a hierarchical relationship, in other words, all of our relationships are either like this or like that, right? The difference is a power differential. So boss and employee, parent and kids, that's not the same thing as husband and wife or two friends in relationship. It's the, the demarcation is a power differential and how you know space is being taken up or not being taken up is defined by roles and responsibilities. Roles and responsibilities, in other words, if two friends have mutual responsibility to meet the needs of the other, parents and kids do not have the mutual responsibility to meet the needs of the other. If they did, my kids would be awful at that. <laughs> it's defined by roles and responsibilities. So I want to talk specifically a little bit about the role of the one in authority. Because that's God, and that's, I think, going to be the kind of the beginning light for us. So when it comes to this, here is, here is the responsibility of the one in authority. The responsibility of the one in authority, or the role of the one in authority, is to use their authority to the benefit of the one under their authority. The role of the one in authority is to use their authority for the benefit of the one under their authority. Example, my job as my children's parent. my role is to use my authority for their good, right? In other words, what's loving is for me to say what's best for you. What's loving for you is for me to say what's best for you. Whether that thing that's best is good or that thing that's best is not what you want. Like that's my job as a parent is to tell my kids this is what is good for you. Now here's what's interesting. Here's what we're going to explore this morning. What do we do with the reality that sometimes what God calls us to doesn't feel like what is good for us? Because this definition, that's just basic servant leadership to be clear. That's just basically what does love require of me to be clear. That's just simply saying, if me as a parent, and I'm like, hey kids, I love you guys, um, and I know that you want to get a good night's sleep tonight, and so instead of just drinking water before bed, why don't you just just go for it, have coke, in fact, have some Mountain Dew. In fact, here's some like, you know, five-hour energy, seven-hour energy. The energy timeline gets like exacerbated, right? It's like 37-hour energy. Here you go, kids. I love you. Here's what you should have before bed. No, that would be terrible, parents. So what love requires of me is to do what's best for them. Jesus said it differently. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But again, how do we reconcile that? With the fact that Jesus, just being transparent, the call on some people's life is to die for the gospel. How do we reconcile the fact that, that oftentimes what feels like the calling of God in life, in fact, for us, let's be honest, for those of us who are kind of like one foot in the world, one foot out, you're like, okay, I like Jesus, I like this church, I like this thing, I, like, you know, it's, it's interesting, and it's neat, and, and, and when I go to it, I feel better, and I go to it, and I love it, and I think I love Jesus, and I think I love God, and we have one foot here, but then we have one foot in the world, and it's like, man, but this other stuff is really, really, really fun. And the reason why I'm not two feet in with Jesus is because that other one is really fun and to fully follow Jesus feels like this strong calling. This this interesting paradox in the Bible that's this denial of self. So you're going to be for my good but my good is to take up my cross and die. Well, there's a little bit of a tension between those two things. And into that, into that, is what we're going to explore. Because at the core, when we say that, we're saying the flow of obedience away from me is really difficult. Well, maybe there's something about that that we haven't discovered. In fact, the rest of the series is simply about this. If you were to kind of say, in a nutshell, what's the entire series about? How to obey when obedience is difficult, but to not make it so difficult anymore. How to obey... When obedience is difficult How to follow God when follow God isn't easy How do we make that A more manageable, realistic Process Because again, God's desire to be fair And to be clear, especially when you look at a lot of the Old Testament texts we're going to do this morning When you look at a lot of God is very consumed with himself And it's an interesting context if You got your Bible? You can open up, or if you were going to be having on the screens To the book of Malachi, which I know everybody's like Bro, I was just in Malachi this morning So glad we're back Malachi chapter 1, in fact, I'm going to be honest for the first long time I was a Christian and I don't know, the first year, decade, something like that, like, when I was really young I think I got trauma, it wasn't trauma I just watched a movie called Children of the Corn this guy's name was Malachi, and I was terrified of this book in the Bible, I was like if that's anything like that movie, I'm out on that part of the Bible, There's 65 books in mine Malachi, who's one of the last prophets in the Old Testament to prophesy to the nation of Israel and this is what It says in chapter one, it says this, for I, sorry, about halfway through this verse, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, it's like, well, thank you for being self-assured, God, and my name will be feared among the nations, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. He said... My name is great. My name is going to be blessed. My name is going to go throughout. And, and priests, you know, kind of religious folks, I want you to know that if you don't prioritize, if you don't look at, if you don't have the same thoughts, you don't have the same idea, if you don't look at me and honor my name and glorify my name, not your own name, then I want you to know that your blessings, the things that you felt like were blessings, are actually going to turn into curses. He goes on. Actually, we're going to flip around go to Isaiah 42. These are some of my favorite verses. He says, "I am the Lord. That is my name." I love how he says that because it's not like he's having like an identity crisis, right? It's not like I am the Lord, like that's my name, like he has ADHD or something, right? Like he's saying, "No, no I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will not. I will give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols." So why is he saying that? Simply this. He's not saying, I am the Lord, that's my name Because he needs to be reminded that he is the Lord He's saying, I am the Lord, that is my name I need to tell the nation of Israel that Because the nation of Israel keeps pretending like they are the Lord Like they are God Like they know what's best Like they know what's ideal Like they know what the good picture of the good life is But I'm telling you that I am God And I will not share my glory With another I think this is the tension that many of us feel Between the Old Testament and the New Testament we look at it and we say, okay, New Testament, for God so loved that he gave his only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And Son of the Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. And do nothing out of selfish ambition and and see in humility, consider others better than yourself. And we should have the same mindset of Jesus, who considered equality with God not something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and humbled himself. Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You, 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 you. Isaiah, me, I'm God, bow down. Continues. Isaiah 43, 11. It says, I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 44, 8, Fear not, nor be afraid, have I told you from old and declared it. And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Now, this is interesting, because here's what it basically boils down to. God's ultimate glory, if you are God's ultimate passion, if you were to say, what is God's obsession? What is at the center of God's life? The center of God's life is himself. The center of God's life is his own glory. Does anybody else feel like that's a little bit narcissistic? Like, I don't know if you know this word called like megalomania, but it's kind of like this idea of like everything revolves around me. It's like narcissistic on steroids. So how is it that God can be so self-obsessed yet at the same time say, I'm going to do what's best for you? Because, here's, 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 here's the tension, if God decides to be about himself and not us, he's actually unloving. But God is a God of love. And this is where I think we find ourselves in this dysfunctional, paradoxical, codependent relationship. Because we know there's a bunch of stuff that God has done to love us, serve us, care about us, and that we can know him. And Yet at the same time, it seems like when we actually follow him, it's not about us, it's not about, it's about him. And at the same time, it actually hurts us at times. So how do those two things coexist? And I love that last part where it says is there any God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Um, my daughter, she's seven years old, and if you know seven years old, seven year olds, um, they have the nutrition, the nutritional awareness of like a seven year old. Actually, <laughs> I mean they're uh, so so. Hey, man, I love her to death, and she's got a sweet tooth, and um. Her favorite thing, I mean, her favorite thing I think on a planet, well, there's kind of two things. One um, is she loves Nutella. We're just going to start there. You can apply it to whatever you want to. We put Nutella on pancakes. Um, they think I make um, Nutella uh, tacos. You know what that is? That's a pancake folded in half with some Nutella in it, right? They're like, oh, heck can I have a Nutella taco? <laughs> you think you're so cultured. <laughs> All they want, all she wants, and, and, I, and I mean this truly, like if, at, at any point in time, we don't know what we're gonna have for dinner, we don't have for lunch, I'm like, Avery, what, what do you want? She always says, a Nutella sandwich, a Nutella sandwich. Is. You know what a Nutella sandwich is? It's bread, Nutella, bread. Parents of the Year, right here, right? And at times, oftentimes, actually, I give in to that. I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. It's just easier for me. It's easier for my life that you just not continually complain. And I'll make you something you don't eat, and you make something you don't eat, it, and then you're starving, and you're not starving. And sometimes, you know, I, I all of to, to bed hungry, but sometimes I'm like, you're just a pain when I do that, right? And so at times I give in. At times I just go all in. I'm like, hey, you want a Nutella sandwich? Daddy's going to give you a Nutella sandwich, right? Peak Nutella sandwich is not actually bread. It's graham cracker, Nutella, chocolate chips, honey, graham cracker. That's your father right there who loves you in heaven, right? I'm telling you, you try that later. In fact, if you want to try something that will blow your mind, double stuffed Oreos and Nutella on top. Free tip. Some of y'all are like, I'm so glad I came to church this morning. (laughs) Now, what does that have to do with anything? Here's Here's the reality. For me as her father, the most loving thing I can do in the best demonstration of love is to God give her what she wants, but what she needs because she's not aware of the full context of what's happening. So it's to not say, okay, yeah, yeah, just Nutella, 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 Nutella. It's for me to say, hey, let's try some. This is crazy. How do you feel about a vegetable today, hon? You know? <laughs> Fruit? Anybody? Like a little bit of protein maybe in there? Or maybe a, just even a complex carbohydrate. If I continually just give her this Nutella, then she eventually becomes malnourished, she, she, and, and when she eats too much of it, she, her, her stomach hurts, and she doesn't feel good, and she doesn't sleep good, and all this good stuff. Right? The best, most loving thing that I could do as a parent is know what's best for my daughter and actually place that in the center of her nutritional, dietary plan. Now, here's what's interesting. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. Here's what's interesting about God. For God to be God, he has to know that he's God. Right? Everybody's like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. What that actually means, though, is God has to be the most self-aware being in all of beings. And if God is the most self-aware being in all of beings, he knows himself. Here's what God knows. Is that God is best. He is more grand. He is more glorious. He is more beautiful. He is more mighty. He is more holy. He has more intrinsic Value in every sense and in every way, and he's God, so he knows that. And so he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. In other words, I know that I am God, and I know that I am greatest. If then what love requires is to put what's best at the center, then the most loving thing that God can do is require us, command us, demand us, and implore us to put him at the center. And in fact, if God knows he's best and refuses to do that, he is no longer loving. It is not narcissistic. It's self-aware and honest. And for him to do anything else would be to say, yeah, just put whatever you want at the center of your life. Isaiah. Actually, let's just go to this Isaiah 45. We're going to go to Isaiah 40. I'm going to read a couple verses, and I think this is, this, this section, I just, I, I love how he lays it out. He says, to whom then would you liken God, or what likeness would you compare him? Isaiah 40, 18. An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it. And overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished, that's, that's, that's broke, that's what that means. For an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks how the skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. In other words, yeah, no, no, I can allow you. Because when the flow of obedience goes away from you, there's something inside our kingdom, something inside our glory that wants to have that, something inside of our comfort that wants to have that. And so we say, okay, God, this is what I want to put the center of my life. At the center of my life is comfort. At the center of my life is myself. At the center of my life is the fact that people like me. The center of my life is the fact that I'm successful. The the center of my life is the fact that I'm attractive. The the center of my life is the fact that people follow me. The the center of my life is the fact that I have family and I have relationships. All of that stuff, and even family, it sounds good, right? Until, like your spouse is terrible at putting things away and always leaves their towel everywhere even when it's wet they leave it on the bed and i'm not talking about my spouse i'm talking about my spouse's spouse okay <laughs> there you go kids they're awesome until they can think you know <laughs> and then they're defiant and they grow up and then they're doing incredible things hopefully and the worst thing i can do the most dysfunctional thing I can do is to say, now, kids, your lives should revolve around meeting my needs because you are my idol. You want to know how to... I mean, we're all going to mess up our kids in some way, shape or form, right? Because we're all broken people. But you want to know how to really cause some damage? Have your family as an idol. You will eventually suffocate your family. Some of you, that's your story. And I mean that with all empathy. And that's the danger. And so he says, man, what else is deserving of that place? Do you not know? Notice, let, me, let me contrast this. So you, you have something, you take it, and you build it, and somebody made it, and there's an algorithm around it, and there's a thought around it, and there's a compensation package around it. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has that not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above The circles of the earth. And its inhabitants, that's us, are like grasshoppers. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am a good grasshopper though, right? Have you seen the way I do the little leg thing and like make some music, right? Like, have you seen my grasshopperness? He says, hold on, grasshopper. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing. It makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He says, there's something so much bigger, so much grander, so much greater than what you realize is happening here. That I know that this is a little bit difficult, and I know this is a little bit complex. But perhaps there's something so much bigger, so much greater, so much more complex than what we can see. And somehow, perhaps, we have our own picture of the good life. Right? We have this thing that drives us. What I find is really interesting about this, by the way, is we willfully do things that we feel like are difficult for us, suffering for us, things that we'd rather not do because they have an end goal of the picture of the good life. For example, in January, so many of you dudes are going to start some wild workout plans because spring break's coming and you're going to put some weird stuff in your body and you're going to get yoked and you're not going to want to every day. Why do you do that? Why do you, let me ask you this, why do you go to work in the morning? Those of you go to work, why do you go to school Why are you driving up massive debt just so that you can go and you can pay it all back? Wonder why? It's because beyond that initial level of desire is this... North star of what the good life is. And whenever we begin to see obedience that flows away from us, what we're really saying is, I have my picture of the good life. I have my picture of my kingdom and my glory more than I have God, the picture of God's kingdom and God's glory. And perhaps, perhaps for us, the thing that shifts inside of us that makes obedience more of a sense, a sense of something that we can go towards is the fact that for the first time, I actually realize realize that my picture of glory, that my picture of the good life, isn't what's best. Give us an example to kind of drive this thought home, a couple. One, if I were to ever ask Abe, and I would say, hun, let me ask you a question. You want to feel bad? Like, do you want to just feel like weird and lethargic? And do you want to feel bad? Do you want to start to, you know, look bad? And do you want to maybe not sleep well tonight? Oh, by the way, um, do you want to not sleep well tonight? Do you want to wake up tomorrow morning exhausted? And do you want to have a terrible day at school tomorrow? Is that something that you'd like? <laughs> she would say, no. I'd say, okay, well, let me ask you in a different way. Hey, you want to look good, feel good, sleep good, wake good, and have a great day tomorrow? I don't think anybody'd be like, "Nah, not for me." Okay. Well, maybe there's something bigger going on. Maybe the temporary thing is just something that you don't fully understand. Coach, um, my little guy, uh, Rhodes, his flag football team. He's five years old. It's train wreck. Okay, <laughs> should be honest about that. It's it's a cute train wreck, none, nonetheless. But other sports, you just kind of roll the ball out there and they just go kick it, you know, something along those lines. Like, football is a coordinated effort with multiple people requiring skill sets like catching. Like, these kids can't put on their flags. Legitimately, like, I'm like, okay, buckle, buckle, buckle. You know, we got this one kid, and he's the cutest thing. It's also sometimes the annoyingest thing, but it's oftentimes like, He's four, so he's just he, he, he's just existing as a four-year-old. You know, when you're four, or you probably don't remember when you're four. You probably don't have a lot of cognitive working memories. But if you did, you would know you're just kind of like, oh, you know, doing stuff. And the way that they do it, they, they can rush in, right? But you have to be so many steps away. So you put one little thing right there where the ball goes down, and you put one little thing over there where they can start to go from. Well, there's one little kid on our team. He's, he's, he cracks me up because he runs and he grabs the thing and he starts walking away from it. We're like, bro, there's a game going on. This is not practice, right? And he starts like getting it. I'm like, I'm like, hey, hey, come in. And he's like. He just sees it and he looks at me. I kid you not, he just goes, starts walking away. I'm like, Joker, come here, man, right? So like the game is going on, the thing's happening, kids, like the clock is running, everything's happening. And I'm just like, bro, there's something bigger going on. In fact, if you would come back here, put this thing down, and you would actually like like, play this, like there's people around, there's things around. It's going to be a lot more fun if you do this. In other words, I'm sitting there saying, hey, there's something bigger going on. If I were to ask anybody in here who's a Christian, would you love it? if at the end of your, I mean, you follow Jesus, not culturally, I mean, he is primary in your life, or at least you want him to be as often as possible. That's your goal. If I were to say to you, would you love it? How how would you feel about when you die? I want you to just picture yourself, and you're in heaven, and you go past into the gates, and they're supposedly pearly, and you, you walk in, and you're seeing stuff, and you're like, man, this is Jesus, this is wild. He's like, I know, I've been telling you. And so you try to walk in, right? You score maybe heaven. And at some point, you find this corner of people. Maybe it's this room full of people. Maybe it's this massive group of people. But you find this group of people. And as you're walking up, you realize, I know them. And as you walk up, you realize, I know all of them. And maybe there's even some people I don't know. And they send somebody out to you. Maybe it's a delegate, the tribute, you know. And as they're walking up, the person comes and says, hey, we wanted to do this on behalf of God. He asked us and called us to do this. By the way, I don't think this is actually going to happen. But just for, for the sake of the point, they walk up and they say, see all those people? He you say, yeah, I know them all. And they say, the reason they're here is because of what God did through you the reason that corner of people, that pocket of people, that room of people, the reason they're here, because of what God did through you. I think every single one of us who is a Jesus follower would love nothing more than to experience that at the end of our life. Here's my point. We know that. We believe that. In the same way A would say, I want to look good, feel good, sleep good, wake good, and have a great day, and we would want to have that corner of the pocket of people. But many of us have a coworker or a roommate or a friend who's in deep need. And they don't maybe even just need to hear the gospel right now. They just need someone who looks like Jesus with skin on. They need somebody who's going to take time out of their day. You've got a guy named Frank who works in the cubicle next to you at work. And, and, and Frank is going through some stuff, and he just needs somebody to be there, to listen, and to be a a shoulder to cry on and an ear to listen to. Like we would say we want to do that, right? Okay, so here's this person next to you, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. The way that my office culture works we don't really talk about that, so we don't really actually talk about any kind, of, any kind of interpersonal stuff, and we just don't even like like that's not the thing that we do at a place like this. And and, and honestly, like so more of my type and style of doing that is I just like you know I just walk and like I, well I used to go to Publix and walk down the aisles and smile at people and hope that they would see Jesus through me. Um, now I just order Instacart. So when the person drops the thing out of my door, I was like, oh, thank you, you know. And then I just say like, God bless, or I don't even say God, I say have a blessed day. Got him. Gospel to the nations, am I right? (laughs) Right, now think about this, think about this Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps Most of our disobedience When we feel like the flow of benefit Is going away from us Perhaps the problem is We just don't see as God sees Because if we did I'm telling you We would do exactly what he says this is not me saying this with me being perfect obedience. like, oh, come, come hither, children. You know, let me give you the perspective of God. I'm like, no, no, no. I struggle with this all the time. Every area, every time I sin, every time I have disobedience, it's because something inside of me wants my own kingdom, wants my own glory. I see how I see, and how I see, I feel like it's better than how God sees. But if I saw how God saw, I would do what God says. His desire is for his own glory, but his glory, his self, his own being is what's greatest. And God demands and commands that we put it at the center. And when we do that, though we don't always see how God sees, we will do what He says. So the rest of the series is of around this. How do we recalibrate? How do we recalibrate in different areas of our life? Our vision of the good life. How do we recalibrate to where we can see as God sees? Because I'm telling you, when we do that, we will do as God says. Here we go, I thought they were kicking me out. (laughs) So I want to simply leave you with this thought and this question. What are the areas that you don't do as God says because you don't see as God sees? What are the areas in your life where the flow of disobedience or the flow of obedience is only in the direction of our benefit and not in the direction of God because we feel like when it's against us, then it's not for us, and we feel like maybe God doesn't want what's best for us, but perhaps that's the problem. Perhaps our picture of the good life, perhaps that North Star, perhaps seeing God and seeing his glory and realizing I could spend my life chasing after so many things, but inevitably they do what idols always do, which is to over-promise, under-deliver, and leave us feeling empty inside. And to be fair, for some of us, that's why we're here. You're not even still sure if God exists or if God's real, but you have tried to fill your life with so many other things, and you wake up in the morning every time feeling empty. Feeling like there's something missing. It's because there is. And his name's Jesus. And he loves you so much, died for you. Not because he had to, not because you deserved it, but because of his great love for us. He calls us into relationship with him and to live a life with him at the center. And what we find is that when we find Jesus, we find him. When we see as God sees, we'll do as God says. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you give us the opportunity to know you, to see you, to follow you. God, every single one of us in here, we have known the good that you called us to do and not do We have had our own picture of the good life and followed that as opposed to the life that you called us to. We've traded your glory for the glory of idols. We've traded you for the stuff that you bring. And God, I pray that deep into our hearts, we would know that the rule of you in authority is to do what's best for those under your authority and the best for those under your authority is you. So God, we choose you We put you at the center even when we don't see it. We put you at the center even when it doesn't feel good. And God, we pray that as we do that, you will help us to see as you see so we can do as you say. I pray the holiness of our church would raise. I pray for anybody in here who they're just, man, they're just not sure about faith, not sure about God, not sure about Jesus, not sure about Christianity because of the fact they have consistently seen Christians only obey when it's convenient for them, only suffer when it's convenient for them, only sacrifice when the benefit is towards them, that they would see people who so know you, so trust you, so see how you see. They do everything you say. And as they see those people, they see you, King Jesus. Would you give us the wisdom and the courage from this week till next to simply ask the question, God, what are the areas of my life? What are the areas of my life where I don't do as you say, because I don't see as you see? And God, would you help me to see as you see so I can do as you say? Jesus, I pray that lives will be changed as you century your glory lord is the desire of our heart it's in jesus name we pray amen amen i thank you guys so much for coming to church this week we love you and um, we got a team up front we would love to pray for you about anything if you want to it looks like a follow jesus or just whatever's going on in life or it you are connected to your next steps besides that have a wonderful rest of your sunday